Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Justice a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system, with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Mark Brahma, Director of Corporate Safeguarding and Chair of Hampshire Children's Services, about the importance of safeguarding and what it really means. Mark talks about current challenges children face, including through access to the internet and social media, and he shares how he believes we can better protect children from harm. Please note, this episode discusses harm towards children that some listeners may find distressing. Mark Brahma, I'm Director of Corporate Safeguarding. I'm also locum chair for Hampshire Children's Services, so I chair child protection conferences when children are deemed potentially to be at risk of significant harm. And I also manage uh, sex offenders for a religious organisation. Right, so the first thing I want to get to the bottom of really is what is safeguarding and why do we need it? So safeguarding is protecting... Originally it was children, so under 18s, from the risk of harm, whether that was uh, physical, emotional, sexual, neglect, now domestic abuse, but it's... It's, it's a bigger subject than that, than, than just children now. It's vulnerable people. So would that be sort of people with a mental age maybe that's lower? Or? Yeah, so we all have our own vulnerabilities. Uh, it may be special educational needs. It may be uh, that you're not in a great place. You know, to me, that is a safeguarding concern. But, but of course, the legislation and most of the guidance actually relates to children. So there is a, a demarcation. OK. And it's children in particular settings? Is it schools? How yeah. do you sort of put any type of boundary around that? Because it sort of seems quite wide. Across the board, really. So um, wherever a child may be at risk, um, there may be a safeguarding concern. Um, so not just in... You know, we see... Sadly, we sometimes see parents behaving badly with their children in the street. That is a safeguarding concern. Mm. I think we should, we as a society should be confident to do something about it. Yeah, you get the safeguarding concerns that we are all seen in, the, in recent years in relation to schools, charities, uh, sporting organisations. Wherever there are children, sadly, there's likely to be 
a, I'll be careful how I say this, but a number of people who are motivated to offend against children. So it's not a legislative piece, is it? A safeguarding standard. I'm trying to work out, or the listener might be trying to work out, you know, what is it? Is it enforceable? So let's take um, a school, for example. Um, we can all imagine a school. We've all been into a school probably at some point, hopefully, in our lives. Um, so how does that work? Is there a legal obligation on that school to have a safeguarding policy? Is there a legal obligation? Does someone have to check that a school might have a policy, but they might not be doing anything with that policy at all, or it might be out of date? Within education, there is what they call statutory guidance. What happens if you don't comply with statutory guidance is, I think, a little unclear. Within education, you have Ofsted, who is the inspector. So Ofsted can, and sometimes, well, we've seen, we saw in the press last week, can shut places down if they are failing in safeguard. How often does that happen? I think rarely. Yeah. So one has to ask, what is the stick behind the statutory guidance? If, if a teacher fails in a safeguarding referral, what happens to them? They actually may be deemed to breach staff conduct, regulations, teaching standards. But it's not, it's not a, a criminal act, so it's an HR matter. So if, for example, a teacher receives a, a disclosure from a child who says, I'm, go <clears throat> I'm hit with a stick at uh, home and I don't like it, and the teacher fails to report that, or the teacher doesn't comply with their own policies, the, 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 the edu uh, keeping children safe in education uh, guidance, then they're not prosecuted. It's an HR matter. So they may have breached standards. And I think it's really difficult because I'm not one for criminalising anybody, particularly, unless there's a real, really strong need to do so. But I have seen and I still see many, many failings where children are let down. And um, I think we, we as a society need to be looking at the, the culture of our organisations, embedding safeguarding as a thread, whether it's children, whether it's other vulnerable people. But we need to become more leader-led. Um, I do work with charities and other organisations, and I keep saying that, yeah, it's got to come from the top. People at the top need to set the culture and the tone and, and there's that thing about accountability, isn't there? It's, you know, if people aren't held accountable for where they fail, and of course we'll all fail probably on a day-to-day -day basis mm. at sort of things, right? But when it comes to the safety of a child in an educational setting or in any other setting where someone other than the parents is in charge of them, you would have thought that that would really have to be something that's, yeah it's the leadership who has to hold their staff accountable for what happens. And ultimately, they are then accountable. But do you think that's why often things don't happen? Because if you're the head of a school or the leader of an organisation where something awful happens, I imagine it's sometimes within their interest to just be like, oh, I'd rather not deal with this, actually, because this reflects really badly on me and my leadership skills. That certainly happens, and I've, I've, I can bear testament to, to it happening um in recent years in a, school, in a school where they were very worried about the reputational damage. The uh, ICS of the Independent Sexual Abuse Inquiry is, is talking about 
um, reputational damage being put above the safety of individuals? Well, to me, it's really simple. If, if I'm running an organisation and an incident happens and I deal with it properly and I stand up and say, look, this is dreadful, should never have happened, these are our policies and procedures, this is how we responded robustly, quickly, effectively, this is how we're trying to put it right and we're certainly not going to cover anything up, you, you you can't you're 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 bomb proof, aren't you? Yeah, well you would have thought so and, and as you say it's sort of better to be transparent and open. I did um research for my masters for criminology and I looked at um business, the business world and under eighteens in the business world. And there's a gap. Because what happens is that um under eighteens come out of a further education environment where they are, you know, very much safeguarding generally is, is at the forefront of the people around them. And suddenly they parachuted into a work environment um, and safeguarding is not a priority or it's not viewed as something that has to be done. It's, it's viewed as you've got a, some, an employee or an apprentice or whatever they are who's under 18, but don't worry about that because we've got the HR policies. But what my research showed was the gaps. Um, example, 17-year-old um, apprentice goes in, an engineering apprentice goes into the workshop, trousers around his backside, baseball cap on the wrong way. This is a true story. Um, one of the adult males on the shop floor pulls his trousers down, slaps his backside and tells him to go and get effing dressed. Well, if that happened to me, I'd be seriously dischuffed and I'm an adult. And if but that was a sexual assault on a child. Now, what did the organisation do? What did the engineering company do? They didn't know what to do. They right. didn't recognise it as a, a, a sexual assault on a child. So what they did was they they did their incompetent best. Yeah, and I imagine also culturally, maybe a lot of the senior leadership or the people in charge might have been like, well, quite right, the youth today need to learn to pull their pants up uh, and not have them hanging halfway down there. But that doesn't necessarily sit in line with the legislation, right? No. And whether a... you like it or not, and whatever your views are on how annoying it is seeing people wearing their trousers halfway down their bums, yeah, it's not about that, is it? It's no. about the law. And not least, you know, you look at the liability for the employer, you know, what have they done to mitigate the risks to the child? Because if that child goes to the lawyer, the parents go to the lawyer and say, well, look, my child was subject to a sexual assault in the workplace... And there's no there's no safeguarding policy. There's no expertise. There's no um, induction process for the staff who are going to be working with under 18s. Immediately, there's a massive gap. Why can't businesses have the safeguarding policies that sit around schools and other activities? You know, sporting activities. Does it have to be a different safeguarding 
thing for businesses? No, I mean, I, what, what I'm a great believer in uh, is you can buy off-the-shelf policies, okay? You go on the internet, 10 quid, download, fill in the gaps. But it doesn't map your processes. And it doesn't identify the risks unique to your organisation. And if it doesn't identify the, the risks to your organisation, how do you then mitigate those risks? So if you've got a bland safeguarding policy with definitions of what abuse is and the different categories and how we report, you know, we, we, how we deal with the disclosure, that's good stuff. But it doesn't, it doesn't empower the people who have to discharge that, that policy. No, it doesn't. And I've seen policies, they're like the, some theses like that, yeah, holding doors open and, and they never get beyond holding the door open because people read it. And they, and they think, I can't absorb all that. It's got to be empowering. And it's got to be, you know, you want to see your boss coming down and challenging and saying, why is that going on? You know, there's a safeguarding concern here. Why are we doing that? You're leaving me vicariously liable, potentially. Right. And it's often the way with policies, though, isn't it? If you sort of say to staff, oh, what's the, uh, the sort of fire policy or the maternity leave policy? You know, they tend to be things that are hidden away on shelves. So how, how does one bring, slightly strange question, but how do you bring policies to life? Should it be a sort of standing agenda item on a sort of Monday morning? I don't know, full team briefing. It's like always reminding people of their duty of care, which you might argue that you shouldn't have to do when you're working with children. But it seems like it wouldn't be a bad thing to be reminded of maybe more. You're so right, because policies, you talk to people about policies and they just glaze over. Yeah. Don't they? They say, oh, God, yeah, whatever. But um, what we've done very well is we have embedded health and safety. You know, health and safety is a very serious subject in the workplace. Yeah. Well, in, in my research, I argued that safeguarding should be on parallel with health and safety because it's... When you would have thought, it's kind of one in the same thing as well. I know health and safety is more about the physical environment, right? Yeah. But then you sort of think it's not a million miles apart, health and safety <laughs> of the child in a school. Um, it's not just about them falling in the pond, if you're lucky enough to have a pond at your school, but um, it's also about not being abused, potentially. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and it's, a, it's an anomaly, really, and that's why... You know, I do feel we need some proper standards around it. We've got statutory guidance, but you say to people, what does that really mean? Does yeah, it... what does statutory guidance mean? I sort of know what both of those words mean, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I, and my understanding is that the, there's legislation that says that you must have this document, or but the consequences of breaching that guidance is confusing. Is there a consequence for breaching that guidance? Exactly. And I guess then it comes down to, so in a school, it would be your board of governors, potentially, um, who should know what the policies are and make sure that they're there. <laughs> First of all, it's a good start. Are they there? Um, are they up to date? Are they relevant? Right? Is that, is that how it would work in a school? The heads and the sort of governors? Well, the governors are, um, are now being held to account more than they were, which is great. Yeah, and they would be held to account by Ofsted. Yeah, and, and 
And the Charities Commission, if they're a charity, okay. charitable school. But ultimately, I guess it's the head teacher who's held to account. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, they, they should have the safeguarding, designated safeguarding lead, who should be trained to an enhanced level. Um, you know, and then we look at that. I mean, you look at keeping children safe in education, it says staff should be given appropriate training every year or two years well you go to the back of the book and look under a for appropriate what's the definition of appropriate right and there isn't okay so what does that mean so there's no sort of quality standard of training there's no academic rigor right it's kind of amazing isn't it because you think surely this is like quite basic stuff in the sense that Children need to be safe. We need to keep children safe. I think we could all agree with that, regardless of sort of who we are. And the fact that it just um, is another one of those areas that I'm always amazed about, really, that um, it's kind of just a bit vague. It staggers me because, we, you know, we, we trust our children to people, adults. Mm. Um, you know, what level of insight should they have? What level of training should they have to care for our children when we're not there? It's got to be an enhanced level. You know, there's got to be some academic rigour around what is being delivered to them, not just, inverted commas, appropriate training. I look at credibility and I think if you have operated in a statutory environment and you have made life-changing decisions in relation to children, you've generally got a good insight into what's going on. There's many, many people out there who offer safeguarding training. Um, and I'll be very cautious how I say it, but I'd be interested to know their depth of knowledge. Right. And their experience around recognising the real risks, the hidden risks. It concerns me. Mm. It concerns that anybody seem, uh, seems to be able to set up as a safeguarding trainer. Right. Or a consultant. And and how does it work? So we've sort of talked a little bit about schools and what about um, churches? Because obviously that's been a high-profile area over the last few years and potentially decades, right? And you um, said you work in that area as well. What is the sort of obligation on churches for safeguarding? How does that work? Okay, well, <clears throat> of course, most of the charities. Right. So they have responsibility to the Charities Commission. And the Charity Commission does say that you should have safeguarding procedures. My experience of the religious organisation I work for is that they are very, very keen to learn lessons. Okay, they really are doing their very best to get things right. Okay, they are, they are carrying a legacy and they have good structures now. They have lots of training for volunteers, for their clergy. They have proper systems for DBS checks. What does DBS actually stand for, quickly? Disclosure and Barring Service. Yeah, so the, from what I see, religious organisations are working hard to, to get it right. And so by that, do you mean they're sort of trying to get more training in, they're maybe aware for the first time in decades? Is it kind of like there's, there's now a realisation that this isn't just something that happens to other organisations and it just happens over there. It's like if you have children near you, 
you need to make sure you're taking this very seriously. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the organisation I work for, you know, they, they had uh, some very negative publicity through the Independent Sexual Abuse Inquiry. They've, they seem to have taken that very seriously. They're, they're getting it. Um, they're, 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 they've got a national setup now, which is filtering down throughout their organisations. So they're all consistent in what's, what the expectations are. People are trained in how to deal with a child who needs who makes a disclosure. They're tra- trained in safer, safer environments. They're trained in professional boundaries. They have an insight into the risks of them being groomed by somebody who is motivated to uh, offend against a child. So, so for example, um, a member of the clergy is seen as a protective factor in general terms around children, around their ch- the children coming to their church. So if I'm motivated to offend against a child, I'll be straight into the clergy to groom him or her to be seen as their right-hand man. Trusted person who can be left alone with the children. Um, So we deliver training around professional boundaries, what to be aware of when, you know... And I'm not suggesting everybody who's doing great work with their clergy is trying to groom them for ulterior motives... It's just having that little thought at the front of your mind, what's going on here? In the same way as you talked about health and safety, you know, mm. it's um, you have to make sure that you're mitigating against the risks. And sadly, and none of us want to believe that these people exist, but sadly, we all know that they do. Um, and they, mm. I mean, you know better than I, but I've certainly met um, sort of, you know, over the years in prisons, a lot of these people and they're manipulative and sometimes very charming and you'd think, not them, no way. Mm-hmm. And women too, right? It's not just men. Yeah, well, I think, I think you know, you always have this vision of the, the male priest or the male teacher and maybe that's uh, remiss of me, but females as well. Well, you're right, Greena. I mean, we look in the paper and we see female teachers being sent to jail for a sexual relationship with a teenage boy. Um or girl, but the ones recently boys. Mm. You know, how was that allowed to happen? Did people take their eye off the ball? And you see, whenever there's, whenever something like this comes to mind, I always think to myself, what were the warning signs? What were the low-level concerns? If they, the low-level concerns had been picked up on and dealt with properly, could that have been prevented? Yeah. And it's, that, it's this whole holistic view of what safeguarding is. And I've, you know, I always say, well, look, if the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, they're probably standing up for a good reason. Yeah, but I guess the danger is when they're not, because it all seems so normal, or maybe when there's a culture of turn a blind eye, oh, that's just what goes on here. So, I don't know, take, for example, I watched that awful documentary about um, Jimmy Savile, and you look back on it and you go, clearly it, there was smoke and there was fire, and there were red flags all over the place just from watching the documentary. I know it's stitched together ca- cleverly to make you... So, um, and it was a, a Louis Theroux programme, actually, and he was sort of beating himself up because he was like, yeah, I interviewed him, I, I liked him, I didn't see it, and the victims were laughing, saying, well, Louis, that's because he's charming and he's manipulative and, of course, he didn't see it. Um, but, of course, there was a huge culture 
around that time of, well, he's a celebrity, give him the keys to the hospital, leave him alone with patients. I mean, you sort of think, oh, my God. And people go, well, that's what happened in the 80s and 90s. And, and what's happening now? In 20 years' time, are we going to be sitting listening to, oh, my goodness, this individual was operating in clear sight of us all, of, of us all and we thought we'd learned all these lessons? If you're going to be sexually abusing, you've got a lot to lose. And you, they, you've got to become good at covering your tracks. So it's an evolving process. And we've got to get good at recognising being prepared to have that difficult conversation mm. when it's a colleague, being prepared to get people who understand what's going on into a situation so it's in, done independently, it's reviewed independently. Right, because that's an important point, yeah. isn't it? Because if it's not done independently, then you'll get more of the covering of the... The issue. If, if there's an allegation against me in, in, in an environment, whether it's a school or charity, and you and I are old muckers, and you're asked to investigate these allegations against me, um, well, one, what training do you have around the investigative methodology? Two, where's your loyalty going to be? Probably with me. And thirdly, if the victim, what, how is the victim going to view that? that my old mucker, Edwina, is, in, is dealing with their allegation against Mark. It's, it doesn't fit. No. It just, it's just wrong on so many levels. And the reason it doesn't happen, money, and I get that, you know, budgets are tight. Yeah, but then when you sort of think safety of a child, you, you should, almost shouldn't say in the same sentence, should you? Sort of money is tight because it's kind of, again, priorities of where we spend our money. And you would have thought that would sit right at the top because what we've learned through sort of COVID and Brexit and various other things, you know, this money does appear to pay for things that we need to pay for. Um, and every time, you know, whether it's the track and trace and the sort of, you know, the millions or billions of pounds that are being spent, I mean, rightly, and, and it needs to be, and there's a crisis going on. But when you're sort of seeing this sort of crisis sort of all the time every day as you are because you work in it, um, you sort of think, my God, is there not budget to train people? Um, it's not rocket science, is it? And it's not like the hardest thing in the world. <clears throat> no, and, and, you know, my little saying is, you know, if you think, um, if you think insurance is expensive over an accident, and if you've got proper procedures, you've got proper people investigating when there's an allegation, that's your insurance. Mm. Because you bring it, you, you, you're opening your book, you're, you're opening your organisation to independent scrutiny. So if I've made an allegation that my teacher is doing something, what I'm saying here is, is if there's, if there's a, an allegation that falls below the statutory threshold, okay, so if, if there's a, an allegation of sexual assault by a teacher on a child, then that only goes to one place, okay, and that would be done. But the low-level concerns, Mark is always seen hanging around the changing rooms. Right. Or Mark has been giving that child a sweet again. What's going on there? Yeah. Because the local authority are probably going to say, well, you need to do some unpicking here. You need to develop that. Um, and then that's the time, I would say, to bring people independent in who recognise the, the, the early stages of what Mark might be doing. And you can gather that evidence and you can present it 
and you can deal with it. Um, and whether or not you, you know, you might be able to dismiss them out of the teaching environment, I don't know. It depends on what's gone on. But the minimum you could do is put a shot across the bows. And make sure that people are always being sort of watched in a way. It is tricky, isn't it? You can see where it's like, right, I've noticed a few red flags, but I'm a new junior teacher that's just joined and there's an established older teacher. I've got these sort of worries about him or her. You know, oh, God, what do I do? I'm a, I'm a younger teacher. It's sort of, I don't want to cause trouble. And But I guess that is the uh, importance of having known members of staff who hold the brief for safeguarding so I could go and confidentially have a serious conversation by saying, look, I'm not trying to cause trouble, but I have just noticed after my training, perhaps, I have noticed these things that are worrying me. And hopefully it's nothing, but at least I flagged it. So as a junior teacher, as a new teacher, um, maybe I feel like I've done my bit. Yeah, so I mean, now, if you, if you have a concern about a colleague and you don't feel those concerns have been acted upon or taken seriously, it's, it, the guidance is clear, you've got to take it higher. And that's, I guess, why they've said trustees, um, board people on the board should have responsibility for safeguarding so that you've always got somebody to go to. Yeah. So if the head teacher isn't, or the head of the department isn't responding, you take it higher. And right. You, we can't just sit back and say, well, I've done my bit. Yeah. So if you are a charity trustee, for example, and you've been given the lead for safeguarding, um, I certainly know in um, my experience, people sometimes go, oh, God, but that's really serious. Am I now responsible if something goes wrong? So what would you say to that trustee who might be freaking out because they've just been given the brief of taking the lead for safeguarding well, when actually their expertise are in something completely different? Well, as long as they've taken their responsibility seriously. And by that you mean? Policies, procedures, training, review. You, you, you said earlier on about having a standing agenda item on meetings, staff meetings... You know, if somebody's minded to offend against a child or vulnerable adult, all the policies and the procedures in the world probably won't have stopped it. Yeah. You know, but it's about what can we realistically do? And as a, as a trustee of a charity, what can you realistically do? You can insist on it being a priority for your organisation. Yeah. And would that trustee have to get training themselves? I guess that would make sense. Um, and then that trustee is always banging the drum going, when did the staff last get trained in this? Are they up to date? Yeah, so I'm a trustee um, of, a, of a charity and we've trained all our staff and we're going to train the whole board because it's not one person's responsibility. No, because that kind of feels a bit unfair. Yeah, and, and, and it's got to be spoken about. It's got to be a thread of your business. Yeah. You know, diversity is a thread of everything we do. Well, yeah, and I was going to ask about um, do, where does racism sit within safeguarding? Is that in a different camp? Or if a child is suffering racist abuse at school, either from a teacher or from a peer, where does that sit in the safeguarding well, it's, side it, of things? Well, it's likely to be emotional abuse. OK, because I guess there could be a racially aggravated attack where it's physical. So that would be safeguarding, right? But if someone was just calling someone names, would the teachers be like, well, kids call kids names all the time? Well, kids do. But, you know, we need to be conscious of 
not only the victim of the, the bullying, of the name-calling, but what's going on in the child's life that is perpetrating that. Yeah. So in that scenario, you often have two victims somewhere along the line. You know, the, there's some dysfunction in that child's life for them to be behaving like that. And it's really important that we don't close our eyes to that. Yeah. And brand them as the baddie. Yeah. And I suppose it's about the response and teachers feeling confident enough to be able to mm. question it and see where it's coming mm. from. Mm. And, mm. and ultimately to make sure that that child goes away from school knowing that if you're going to grow up and become a sort of a functioning, successful adult, you actually can't use term certain terminology like that. No, and it's got to be, it's got to be outed, doesn't it? It's got to be dealt with head on. Um, but this is the problem... You know, this whole peer-on-peer bullying abuse, call it what we will, you know, the the big problem now is it doesn't stop at the classroom. It's, you know, you take it into your bedroom on your phone, you take it around the dining table, yeah. in your sports, you know, in the football club, because of these mobile phones. They can't, they just can't escape it. Um, so teachers can only do what they can do. But yeah. they can't police what's going on on the internet. And I imagine for you and the sort of roles that you have, um, how much has... I mean, I sort of... I know the answer in a way. How much has technology changed things? And I know the answer is, well, a huge amount. Um, but is that a complete headache when it comes to safeguarding? And is, is that an area where, because technology is always changing, actually our safeguarding policies need to be reflecting that? Yeah, it does. I mean, we need to be evolving. You know, we need to recognise what, what's out there on the internet. Um, you know, goodness me, Edwina, you know, children can now access awful things on the internet. You know, and, and of course, what we hear a lot about is peer-on-peer uh, -peer sexual abuse. You know, girls, particularly girls. Um being sexualised at a very young age by their peers. Well, <laughs> is it any wonder when they can... Young men can go on their phones and, and view what we all know they can view? You know, and how do we... How do we turn that tanker around now to say that what you're seeing on these screens is not the way to behave? It's a real challenge, yeah, isn't it? I, and yeah. I don't know where to get. If I had the answer, I'd be a millionaire. I know, I know and I've got sort of... Um, well, my eldest is 10 and always asking for a phone. She's, she's certainly not going to get one anytime soon, but then you feel really mean. Um, but the point being, like, you know, we look at our phones and the phone function on my phone is the function I use least. I use it as a television. I use it to email and to WhatsApp and as my alarm clock and as my map and to sort my photographs out. It's weird, isn't it? And, and I sort of sometimes think, oh, maybe if I was to give my daughter a phone at some point, is it really mean to give them a phone that is just a phone? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, by all means, you can call your friends, you can call me, because of course you'll want to call your dear mother all the time, um, and you can send text messages. But then people go, you can't do that, that's just like child cruelty. <laughs> well, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, children... There'll be a lot immense peer pressure coming on the children to be on social media. <clears throat> and if they're not on that social media, 
they'll be getting in the neck at school. Yeah. Or um, wherever. Not invited to the parties and they miss yeah. out on all the yeah. chaffs and. So I always say, well, you know, children are going to go and get access to these social media, okay? That's what they will do because it's so much part of their life now. Can we as parents prevent it? No, because they will probably have an account on a friend's phone when they're at their house or when they're school or something like that. Um, and the way I dealt with it was with my two was to try and educate them. Yeah. And not to overreact and not to blow a gasket when my 12-year-old announced at the time she wanted, I think, Facebook. It was 13 you had to be or something. And whilst I was thinking, oh, my goodness, my, my ee-wee lamb is now moving into the real world. Yeah. It's about education, isn't it? Yeah. And not scaring them, just making them aware... You know, these, this is what it says, these are the regulations. Yeah, and, and it's that difficult thing, isn't it, by sort of saying, yes, it can be a fun, wonderful thing, but it's also an incredibly dangerous thing. And so, therefore, it's a bit like, I don't know, putting a child on a bicycle, you know, it can be dangerous if you don't use it properly and you'll cut your face up and knock your teeth out. And um, it's kind of the same with social media and phones, isn't it? It's a, it is a dangerous thing. Um, and, you know, even us adults, you know, people get into trouble on social media all the time because they've put a silly picture up, sent the wrong message to the wrong person. This social media will haunt people because if they're not careful, because it's always there. And companies, and I said, I've had this conversation with my two, fortunately they're through this now. Don't think that when there's a photograph of you throwing a, a gallon of ale down your throat, with your trousers around your ankles or whatever it is. Yeah. Don't think that photograph's ever going to disappear. Someone will find it. If they it will be to. there. To, for somebody will have it. Yeah, so it's, it's a minefield, isn't it? So when did um, safeguarding become a thing? When did it sort of enter into the kind of this is a policy you need? Was it oh in the goodness, 90s or 2000s? Children Act, and I can't remember what year that was. I, I think it evolved... I, do you know, I can't remember. I don't yeah. know, to be honest. Because I was wondering whether there'd been a particular event that kind of went, right, now we need... A bit like health and safety, as we talked about, sort of suddenly went boom, and you've immediately got someone making sure that your chair at your desk is in the right position so you don't get a bad back mm. and, you know, all those kind of mad things that go on. I think it's just evolved. I, I, there must be a date when somebody said... You've got to have this, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. And then what about, so we've talked about schools and churches and some obvious places. What happens when it's not an organisation? So you are um, a piano teacher, uh, for example, and a child is going around to someone's house for tuition or mass tutoring or, you know, so when you've got a lone adult with a child. It's, it's what is regulated activity. So if it's regulated activity, you have to have DBS. Of course, as we all know, DBS is only as good as the day it's issued. Yeah, and who's going to check that the piano teacher has got... Should the parents do that? OK, so the parents should ask. See, I should know that, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I you, know you know, the first thing is you, you need to check that what the definition of regulated activity is in the context of your piano teacher. And, you know, you're entitled to ask what training have you had? 
And let's imagine they look at you in sort of shock horror because they're sort of a lovely person from round the corner. And they're like, well, are you going to pay for my training? What do you mean, DBS? I have to pay to get a DBS check. Mm. Tricky, it's isn't it? professionalism, isn't it? Mm. And of course, I suppose the answer is I should care more about the safety of my child than offending the piano teacher. But yeah, you can see where the difficulties mm. Mm. sort of enter in. And I think um, another area that has always caused me concern is, is that we've always put the onus on the child to come to us if there's a problem. But I, I'm a great believer in professionals around the child should be so honed in on recognising that that child isn't themselves, that they go, that we should be able to go to the child and say, look, you know, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm all right. No, but you don't seem happy. What's the matter? You know, and it's no good us saying... Oh, kids, if you're being abused, come and tell us. We're trusted adults. Yeah, when they're being abused by an adult. Yeah. <laughs> but we should, be, we should be picking it up. We should be, you know, so in the football pitch, for example, when little Johnny isn't actually performing as well, what's going on? Why is it, you know, well, he doesn't want to go to football anymore? Or he's changing his or her behaviour. What's going on there? And until such time as we have that... Again, that, that kind of wider thought process around what is going on here. Let's question it respectfully. We don't have to be rude to anybody. We can just say, look, notice your child's not um, happy today. They seem very quiet. And if you pick up on that, don't just pick up on it and do nothing about it, but talk to people about it, fellow professionals. And say, I'm not happy with, with, you know, that child seems to be changing their, their, their behaviour, what's going on? So it's about us having that dialogue and feeling confident um, <clears throat> because I, I just think it's too easy to put the onus on the child to come to the adults. Yeah, absolutely. So if you had a magic wand um, and you were sort of, you know, from tomorrow were told that you could make some significant changes... Where would you start? I would want a very clear standard, okay, so that everybody knows what's what. It's, it's a confusing landscape for people. It needs to be simplified. Yeah, there needs to be clarity. Yeah, so you need a standard that everybody knows this is what you've got to do. Now, they may say, oh, well, it's in the statutory guidance, or it's here, it's there, but the amount of professionals... I speak to who work with the statutory guidance who don't understand what it means is unbelievable so a clear a clear landscape so everybody knows what's got to be done and that's regardless of whether you're a church a school a scouts club whatever you are whatever you sit um i would like to see academic rigor being put into training so not just me, Mark Rama, can set up because he, this week he wants to be a safeguarding trainer. You've got to have some academic rigour, proper knowledge transfer, some proper learning and outcomes and continual professional development around safeguarding. And there isn't academic rigour at the moment or is it just patchy? Well, there is. You can do, um, you can do degree courses in 
certain aspects of child safety, but for child, for staff holding responsibility for children on a daily basis, there needs to be some good, proper academic rigour, I think. And the people delivering the training need to have come from a thoroughly down background yeah. who understand. So that's that. So it's the standard, the training. And I think we need to have companies who employ under-18s to embrace the concept of safeguarding. Um, I always say, if I, if I go into a company and I said, like, let's look at, uh, we're going to deal with um, um, human resources risk management. They say, oh, that's interesting. Well, or we could always call it safeguarding. No. <laughs> you with me? That's the difference. Right, the, right. So, you know, call it what we will. Let's change the name of it. Yeah. Because, you know, I've, I've had conversations with teachers who say, oh, I did my safeguarding training yesterday and it's two hours of my life I'm never going to get back. And you speak to other people in business and they say, oh, safeguarding, oh, that's a lumber. It's, it's, it, I think it's become, it's got a bit of a... It needs to be rebadged. I think you're right, Adrienne. And also it comes back to the training because some training, it could be really interesting content, but if it's delivered by the wrong person in the wrong way, of course you're going to fall asleep. Yeah. You know, we've all been at trainings like that. Yeah. And then we've all been at trainings, hopefully, that have been really good and you walk out kind of going, oh, brilliant. You know, I'd love to have a bit more of that. Yeah, of course. And if you're going to sit online and tick a box... You know, whilst you've got your headphones on and you're listening to Only Fools and Horses or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and you tick, tick, tick. Yeah, well done, pass. Right, that's that one out of the way. Yeah. What's the point of it? Yeah. I think training's got to be sort of, you know, it's very difficult to do it, um, sort of the tick box exercise, which I've actually done as well, um, because it needs to be emotive. And it's, you know, it's really deep, important, you know, stuff. Uh, and I think if you're not moved and if you don't feel it emotionally, then it hasn't touched the right spot, really. No, I agree. I agree. But um, things can change, you know, if, if we all have that desire yeah. to make stuff better. And, you know, we, we've got cultural challenges now. And just finally, then, tell me about your organisation and if people want to learn more or they're sort of interested in this, or suddenly this podcast has made them go, oh, you know, we need some training. Is that something you can provide? Yeah, we can. Uh, I mean, the people we use for training are, they have made those life-changing decisions for children. Okay, so they come at it from, and they are still making those decisions. They're still safeguarding practitioners at a higher level of social care, policing. Um, so we can, we... I don't like off-the-shelf stuff. You know, we'd sit down with you and work out what your organisation needs. And so, yeah, we can do that. We do reviews. We've done some reviews for schools, charities, some governmental organisations when there's been instances that they want to learn, have learning from. So we've gone in and reviewed, and we've been trusted to you know, around confidentiality, we understand that. And what we also do is if, um, where we support HR departments, um, particularly with schools, our people understand the investigative methodology. So we will gather evidence to 
in the search for the truth. And whatever our findings are, is our people will stand up and defend their findings in any tribunal. So as a decision maker, you're not left hanging. Right. What's the name of your company? CorporateSafeguarding.com. Right. And we'll make sure that the details are in the footnotes of the podcast in case anybody's interested. Um, Well, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.